This podcast series is presented by Archetype. Archetype is an early-stage venture capital fund focused on backing crypto entrepreneurs who are working to accelerate the decentralized future. We lead investments in C-stage companies and are always open to speaking with crypto-native founders. For more information on our team and portfolio, go to archetype.fund. This season of Cross-Chain Examination is sponsored by Talos. Institutional investors across the digital asset industry have connected to Talos to access the entire crypto ecosystem via a single point of entry. Whether on the buy side or the sell side, from Wall Street's most storied firms to crypto native come-ups, institutional investors are using Talos to accelerate their digital asset offerings. Talos provides technology infrastructure that powers the full trade lifecycle. Talos's integrated platform supports the entirety of the trading process, from price discovery to execution and settlement. Check them out at talos.com today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cross-Chain Examination. I'm your host, Catherine Wu. Each week on Cross-Chain Examination, we have on the smartest voices in the crypto industry to tell us what's top of mind for them. This week, we have Ash Egan, founder and GP of Archetype, as my co-host. So we were all uh, at DevCon 6 in Bogota in mid-October, and we had some amazing conversations with some of the best and brightest builders in the Ethereum ecosystem. One of those conversations is what led to today's topic about monolithic blockchains, the trust network, better governance, and the concept of restaking. And there's no one better to talk about this than Sriram Kanan, founder of Eigenlayer, which is a mechanism by which the Ethereum trust can be redirected into any new modules that are built. Welcome to the show, Sriram. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks, Ash, for bringing me here. Very excited to talk about it. <laughs> We're excited as well. So, I've heard you talk about the concept or the context of fragmented trust networks due to the design of monolithic blockchains, specifically how trust gets fragmented due to the need for new consensus or virtual machines. Can you elaborate on this concept for our listeners? Absolutely. The way I think about it is one of the core value propositions of blockchain is the ability to perform permissionless innovation. So if you look at what Ethereum brought to the table, the idea that anybody can create a new application without themselves being trusted has unlocked a massive pseudonymous economy. As a creator of an application, you don't need to be trusted. The blockchain underwrites that trust for you. And this is such an empowering thing because you can be an anon, you can be a nobody, and you can create an application that requires trust, like financial applications, like DAOs, like collectibles, and many other things that do require trust, but that trust is not based on you. It comes from the blockchain. This is something that I've been fascinated about. But four years back, you know, just a little bit of background on myself, I used to run the University of Washington Blockchain Research Lab, from which I've been on leave over the last year or so. And At the University of Washington, when we were studying blockchain, we saw that there is a massive amount of ideas from distributed systems, developers and engineers and innovators and academics around the world, but many of them were not making it into the ecosystem. So this conflicted me personally on, hey, if the value proposition of blockchain is to permit permissionless open innovation, How come it is that these good ideas have not really made it into the blockchain universe? And as I was thinking through some of these things, it became obvious that there is a kind of 
massive difference in creating applications at the DAP or smart contract level and creating new systems at the core infrastructure level. And the core difference is that applications are consumers of trust. They borrow trust from the underlying blockchain, whereas new innovations like creating a new consensus protocol, a new data availability layer, a new oracle, or a new bridge all require new distributed trust networks. And each new innovation needs a new trust network, means the creator of that innovation has a much higher barrier to entry because each of them have to themselves create a distributed trust network, which is like finding a unicorn, right? Decentralized trust is not a common property. It is emergent out of social consensus, which takes years to build. So as I was thinking through this, it became obvious that consumers of trust can be way more permissionless and creators of decentralized trust is very, very rare. So what we want to do, ideally, is to let any systems builder to come and build arbitrary distributed systems on top of a common decentralized trust network. That was our ideal goal. And we started looking through what mechanisms would make it possible. Is it possible to use Bitcoin or maybe mining and use merge mining to write new networks? Is it possible to look at Ethereum. So we found Bitcoin and Ethereum to be obviously the two biggest decentralized trust networks. And the question became, how can we leverage these to actually build the open economy where anybody can come and build distributed systems on a common trust network? And that's when it clicked that the merge is a monumental event in this landscape because unlike proof-of-work trust, proof-of-stake trust is programmable. What do I mean by that? Proof-of-stake trust comes from nodes depositing stake and then agreeing to execute a series of actions specified by the protocol. And they are opting in under the economic assumption that if they misbehave, they are liable to lose their stake. One way of abstractly thinking about it is you know, just a broader analogy, how limited liability corporations broaden the scope of rate of innovation because you know you can go and take a risk and build something and you know what liability you're limited to the assets held by the company and i think of proof of stake as ultra limited liability in the sense that your liability is limited exactly to the stake that you're putting in and the execution of that liability is algorithmic based on slashing which identifies your misbehaviors and algorithmically penalizes you for such misbehaviors. So as as I was thinking through these analogies, the thing that became clear is staking is programmable trust because if I can subject my stake to additional slashing conditions, to additional misbehavior conditions, I can start guaranteeing that I'm doing those actions correctly. So staking is much more programmable trust than mining which is not programmable. For example, it is not possible for us to go and burn a mining equipment if that miner misbehaves because there is a physical to digital translation. Whereas staking is entirely digital and in the realm of the blockchain to control, 
Therefore, we are able to exert both positive economic incentives for nodes to opt in, as well as negative incentives for misbehaving nodes. These two tightly constrain the realm of actions in a pseudonymous world. So we arrived at this idea of eigenlayer as a mechanism by which you can direct staking to then provide additional services using the Ethereum Trust Network. So that's a kind of high level of our journey from being an academic and being frustrated by the slow rate of innovation at the core of blockchain to actually coming up with a solution that could potentially help mitigate some of it. Yeah, and I mean, on the topic of staking being programmable, I know one of the core ideas of Eigenlayer is this concept of restaking, which, you know, lets the stakers of Ethereum opt into providing additional services. And I've also actually heard you say this amazing one-liner. I don't know if you even remember it, but you basically said instead of one protocol to roll them all. It's one trust network to roll them all, which I thought was amazing. So digging into that, how does restaking actually work? And how will restaking actually enable this one trust network vision? Yes. So how does restaking work? So the core thing that we want to do is the same stakers who are operating in Ethereum to reuse their stake and start providing other services. And how would we actually enable something like this? There are various ways of restaking that we allow. The most powerful one is called native restaking. What is native restaking? You go and stake on Ethereum, and when you stake on Ethereum, you have the freedom to set who has the power to withdraw your stake. Nominally, that would be yourself. So. Instead, when you want to opt into Eigenlayer, what you can do is you can set the withdrawal powers to the Eigenlayer smart contracts. To explain a bit, Eigenlayer is not a new L1 or a sidechain or anything. It's just a series of smart contracts on Ethereum. What do these contracts do? These contracts take custody of restaking. So, in the native restaking model, you stake on Ethereum and then set the withdrawal credentials to Eigenlayer smart contracts. And these smart contracts have taken custody of your withdrawal powers. Now, nominally, when you want to withdraw, you ask the Eigenlayer contracts and the Eigenlayer contracts will help you withdraw the stake from Ethereum. This is the normal mode of operation. But in case you misbehaved on any of the services you promised on Eigenlayer, you may be liable to lose some portion of your stake, and Eigenlayer will trigger withdrawal from Ethereum and slash a portion of the stake and return the remaining back to you. So this is the mechanism by which any staker, be it a home staker or an exchange or any other institutional party, any of them can participate in this restaking market without having to necessarily trust a particular liquid staking or other provider. So that's why we call it native restaking. For example, to be very concrete, let's assume that there is a data storage service. So somebody is building this data storage service, and what they want to do is they're saying that each stakers please opt in and provide data storage services. 
And they specify in the on-chain Ethereum contracts, they can specify, for example, what the payment condition is, how much are you being paid per byte, as well as what is the slashing condition. For example, one thing could be if you're staking ETH and if you're claiming to store some piece of data, and if you're randomly recalled to produce that piece of data and you don't produce that data, then you can be slashed. This is an example of how slashing condition can work on top of Eigenlayer. The service contracts on Eigenlayer essentially enable a set of payment and slashing conditions that can then be applied on top of the Ethereum stakers. Sure, Ram, maybe just to hit on in your opening, you mentioned permissionless innovation, and, and we love that term. I think it's very in line with how we think around the future of crypto and Web3, allowing you know sort of anyone in the world to deploy applications and services. Maybe just in terms of, you know, you mentioned data availability and some of these other applications and modules, as you call them, services. How do you think around guiding what those initial modules are going to be versus letting the community and letting anyone with an internet connection decide what those end up being? Sort of how do you think around building out this ecosystem? Yes. So... When we are building a platform like this, there is multiple considerations. The first consideration is this platform is really useful only if a lot of stakers opt in. So it is a two-sided market. So on the one side, stakers have to opt in. On the other side, builders can take their new applications and then just deploy them seamlessly into the platform. So that's the two sides of the market. When there is a lot of stakers, applications want to come and build on top, right? Modules or services can be built on top. When there's a lot of modules and services paying a lot of fees, that means stakers have productive yields, so stakers come. So when you have a two-sided marketplace like this, we have to get the marketplace started. So part of the way we think about it is we want to build the first service on top of this ecosystem. And the way we think about it is, you know, what are some of the most important services that Ethereum needs today and will need in the coming three years to create the next set of applications, the next set of use cases that can then be built on top of blockchain? One way we think about it is the current set of use cases on crypto have been dovetailed into the particular constraints of these platforms. If you look at examples like DeFi, NFT, and DAOs, which I would say are some of the most popular application classes, they are all high value and low throughput. These are the applications we see today. And as we imagine a crypto-powered future where many, many digital platforms are much more naturally built on blockchains rather than on fixed intermediation, What we imagine is a world where this constraint no longer needs to apply. The fact that you need high value per transaction or only low throughput. So look at Ethereum and ask, what is Ethereum's data bandwidth? And Ethereum has, you know, a block limit of one megabyte blocks. And block time is like 12 seconds. So you can divide the two and that gives you the ratio of like, what is the bytes per second? something like 83 kilobytes per second. If you look at this number, 83 kilobytes per second, 
and the aspiration of Ethereum to power basically the world, it's simply not enough. We need much higher data bandwidth to power this class of applications that we're talking about. Okay, so that led us to this question, what would be architectural upgrades to Ethereum that can actually get us to maybe hundreds of megabytes per second or even tens of gigabytes per second in the future? Some of these are already on the Ethereum roadmap, things like dunk sharding, which is a mechanism to do data availability sampling. But there are many, many different engineering trade-offs and architectures that can be explored within the realm of these cryptographic methods and the broad umbrella of data availability. And so we started exploring some of them, and we found that there are ways to make trade-offs which can actually get extremely high throughputs while not requiring each node to also have high node requirements. So there's a natural push and pull between what is the system throughput and what is the node throughput. And we can think of like bandwidth scaling as like the ratio between the system throughput and the node throughput. And we thought a lot about it and we have architectures where you can ha get very high system throughput while requiring very low node throughput. So our current architecture, for example, we are running on our internal testnet is a data availability service which can run, you know, tens of megabytes per second and where each node only needs like 0.3 megabytes per second. This is as compared to Ethereum today, which requires two megabytes per second per node. So this is the first example of a productive service that can be built on top of this eigenlayer paradigm. And over time, what we want to do is to start partnering with other projects who would then build the first series of like third-party applications on top of Eigenlayer. And over time, we will make it a completely self-serve platform where anybody can come and build new things on top. So just to highlight a little bit about the self-serve value proposition, one analogy I have is the analogy from the cloud era, how things like AWS and Azure enabled a massive proliferation of software as a service providers who create new SaaS software that can then be deployed on top of common computational infrastructure. And the nice thing about this is the SaaS creator does not have to worry about hardware and you know how it's being provisioned and so on. They just go and send it to Amazon, AWS, and set, set it up as microservices or whatever. And on the back end, all of these things, the scaling and everything happens. And essentially, they can just receive like a per transaction fee or whatever. So we want to have a similar model in the blockchain world. Distributed systems creators should be able to create new services that they can just deploy on top of Eigenlayer. And... In the back end, they get deployed on this massive decentralized trust network, which is Ethereum. And these nodes then provide these backend services for this, and the middlewares receive a cut of the fee, and the stakers keep a cut of the fee. So this is the model that we want to go to. Yep. The design space is truly incredible. And just from DevCon and throughout our conversations, just the sort of thinking ahead a few years around what could get built is just so exciting to, to talk through. Maybe on that note, in a world where restaking becomes the dominant form of staking, where it's you know, 30, 
percent, even higher, of stakers restaking. Do you expect there to be pushback on Eigenlayer's market dominance, or even a world where restaking is wrapped into Ethereum's roadmap itself? Curious on in a world where a lot of these modules are built out and Eigenlayer does become a smashing success, just a percentage of the market, you know, and, and being true to decentralization. Curious on how you think around that. Yeah, so this is one of the things that we think about a lot because the core value proposition we are offering is decentralized trust. If for whatever reason this decentralized trust centralizes, then it is actually not a good outcome for us either. So one way to think through what are the risks. First is leverage risks. When people talk about something like, oh, I'm going to leverage an existing trust network, immediately alarm bells go off saying, hey, you know, what are the attendant risks in this? And that's a really good way of thinking. But it turns out there are actually reasons that Eigenlayer can significantly reduce or mitigate systemic risks that exist today. And this is a rather like flip of the normal expectation. The reason is, if you look at the ecosystem today, you have applications, but these applications not only depend on Ethereum, but also on a whole suite of middleware. You know, applications may need bridge inputs. Applications may need Oracle inputs. And to break the safety of an application, it is not required to break the safety of Ethereum. If you break the safety of any one of these middlewares, the application safety can be broken. So one way to kind of make all of this concrete is to think about how economic security works in this scenario. Imagine there is one L1 has like, let's say, $20 billion at stake, but the other middlewares have much lower at stake, maybe $1 billion at stake. And every application depends on all of these services. So the cost of attacking the entire ecosystem of dApps is just the cost of attacking one particular middleware. And this is actually a significant systemic risk that exists today. Okay, let's fast forward to an eigenlayer world. How does systemic risk look there? So let's assume the most over-leveraged. What would be the most over-leveraged? every staker is opted into every middleware, right? So you have a $20 billion of stakers. These $20 billion of stakers opted in to these many different middlewares. One would think that this could be a disastrous outcome, but actually that's not the case because now to attack any one dApp, we need to attack at least one middleware. And to attack one middleware, we need to attack a majority of the total stake of $20 billion. So the cost of attack of any dApp in the ecosystem now becomes $20 billion. One way of thinking about it is it is much better to have aggregated security rather than to have fragmented security. Another way to think about it is once a dApp is opted in by 100% of the stakers, you kind of have very similar guarantees to if that protocol was a part of the Ethereum protocol. You can think of it as a free market protocol upgrade. So 
This middleware was provisioned by the market, Oracle, you're reading the price feeds. And now every staker has downloaded and is running it and putting the same stake at risk for this additional service. Now it is as though the Ethereum protocol has expanded a little bit. And this service is part of the core offering. This calculation that trust is dependent on the weakest link. And if you're anyway trusting five different things, you should actually concentrate all the trust on the strongest among those five, right? Like you're trusting L1, but you're also trusting all these four middleware. Might as well concentrate all your trust onto L1 is actually a much better scenario. Okay, so in a modular world, it is much better to have a common trust source and you restake and run many different applications on top. So this is the first aspect of systemic risk. The second aspect, which is kind of like, you know, or I would just add on something to the first aspect, which is that there is a hardening of security at a certain scale. Imagine Ethereum today has $20 billion at stake, but the total amount of dApps and value sitting on Ethereum is much higher than hundreds of billions of dollars. So Ethereum itself, you could say, is over leveraged today. But then why is it still work? It works because there is a guaranteed cost to the attacker, you know, at 20 billion or some, some fraction of 20 billion. But the benefit to the attacker is if they are able to make away with any profit that they get from double signing or whatever. And that is going to be pretty limited because of the way the systems are set up around blockchains. Consensus nodes will lock down if they detect double signing. So there is a certain time to incident response. Exchanges will stop sending out funds and so on. So the benefit to the attacker is bounded, but the cost to the attacker is well known and you know is at least tens of billions of dollars. So this makes it exceedingly unlikely that anybody will pull off an attack on this. So two things together, aggregated security is better. And there is a non-linear hardening of security at certain scales. Both of these lend well to the eigenlayer thesis. Now, what is the flip side to all of this? The flip side is if slashing is written by anybody in their contracts, what if some contract has a bug? This is well within the realm of possibilities that contracts have bugs. Or contracts are written maliciously in order to slash some stakers. And if everybody has restaked, then all each stakers will get slashed. So this could be a pretty disastrous scenario. So this is the risk contagion on Eigenlayer, is how do we make sure that improper, illegitimate slashing does not happen? So we have some initial ideas around using a slashing veto. So there is a reputational quorum of prominent Ethereum and community members who can actually participate in a slashing veto. And the veto basically enables this quorum to reject slashing that has been triggered. And they only reject it, or at least only supposed to reject it, when the slashing is done illegitimately because of a bug or malicious programming. And uh, this kind of a quorum does not have any ability to slash, but they have only the ability to veto slashing. And one important analogy to have in mind is things like layer twos. In layer two solutions, 
you know, we do not think that we have to ossify a perfect protocol on day one. We start with a protocol and then we have governance. And over time, as the protocol ossifies, you can actually remove this governance layer. We expect the same thing to happen on top of Eigenlayer. Any middleware or service built on Eigenlayer initially lives on a layer which has a slashing veto. And once it is solid and has been tested out enough, it moves to a layer which does not have a slashing veto. In fact, the layer that does not have a slashing veto is completely permissionless. Anybody can build on top of it. But stakers will be worried that what if there is a smart contract bug or something else on that? And only middlewares which have survived the test of time will get enough trust from stakers to actually then opt in to that layer. So that's our kind of like high-level solution to this smart contract bug problem is to have two layers of service, one layer which is without a slashing veto but has a much higher trust bar, another layer which is protected by the slashing veto and has lower trust bar. So this is the model that we are thinking through for how we can prevent risk contagion through the Eigenlayer platform. Finally, on decentralization, the thing with something like Eigenlayer is what if you start loading very heavy services on top of Eigenlayer and stake centralizers to a few parties? So this could be a problem. So we also consider this quite seriously. There are two ways we think about it. One is, even if delegation concentrates on Eigenlayer, we want to make sure that the set of home stakers and others who run decentralized operations on Ethereum can still continue to do it for the Ethereum layer. So on Ethereum, they continue to do, be a home staker, but on Eigenlayer, they can reuse their stake and still delegate it to other people for Eigenlayer services. because it's very important that staking is decentralized on Ethereum. So this is number one. Number two, what we also do is we want actually home stakers to be able to participate in a majority of the yield on Eigenlayer, even without delegation. And the way we think about it is if services are lightweight, the node requirements of these services are light, then Actually, it is in the incentive of home stakers to simply run more services directly from home. And the example I gave of the data availability layer we are building is exactly like that. It is only 10% more node requirement than Ethereum. It's extremely lightweight. But the system performance is much better because of horizontal scaling. So we want to enable services like these, which are horizontally scaled or lightweight. For example, Checking zero-knowledge proofs is very lightweight. Running light clients for other blockchains is very lightweight. So we want to enable a suite of services which stakers can even opt in from home staking. Or exchanges and other institutional players can opt in via native restaking. And without delegation, they should be able to run these services. So that is something that we are prioritizing for the decentralization of Ethereum. I think, you know, obviously this is just a short amount of time to cover how Eigenlayer works, what it can enable. I think restaking can really foster 
permissionless innovation. It gives so much more options to builders and to validators on the Ethereum network. And I can't wait to see, you know, what else it can enable. For the listeners who want to dig in more and read more about Eigenlayer and restaking, where can they go find good resources for that? Yes. So we have a website, www.eigenlayer.com. And our Twitter handle is at Eigenlayer, E-I-G-E-N-L-A-Y-E-R. Just a little bit about the name Eigenlayer, Eigen in German for your own. Your own layer, anybody can build anything on top. That's what it's meant to evoke. And also, you can reach me at uh, my Twitter handle, Sriram Kanan, S-R-E-E-R-A-M-K-A-N-N-A-N. Happy to answer any queries you may have. I, I know you will. You're very active on Twitter and ready to answer any questions. So it's early enough where people should tweet at Siram and ask him all the questions <laughs> about Eigenlayer. Awesome. Well, we're going to wrap here. Thank you so much, Siram, for taking the time. I know Thank you were you taking so. a lot of this call from a car, and that's pretty crazy. Um, the hustle I don't think is I've real. ever had that. The hustle is very real. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, there were no stresses for me to drive the car. <laughs> <laughs> awesome well thank you so much thank you thank you Shram. what a conversation i think i wanted to just you know given how technical that conversation was just do a little recap share our thoughts what did you think ash what did you think of eigenlayer the first time you heard about it and started learning about it i think yeah this was a really fun conversation very technical we really got in the weeds and just exploring what a new primitive and new ecosystem could look like and just the origins, you know, a lot of folks years ago were talking about merge mining within the Bitcoin ecosystem and just taking sort of historical learnings and the opportunity set with Ethereum and creating this new design space with restaking the modules that you can build out and really fostering permissionless innovation was what got me so excited during the conversation. Where did the term restaking first come about? Was it kind of in line with the proof of stake roadmap? Or, you know, I remember there were some other staking infrastructure teams that had discussed it in the past. When did you first start hearing about this concept or start thinking about this concept? I think it was a panel with Sharam and Vitalik that I initially heard the word restaking. And so, yeah, whenever Vitalik says something, it's like, drop what you're doing. Vitalis dropped something. What is he talking about? And that sort of like kicked off at least our deep dive. And then, you know, during DevCon, we we're like, we got to meet this guy. We got to talk to Eigenlayer to, to actually understand what they're building out. Yeah. We didn't even have time today to dig into the data availability aspect of it. Do you want to, do you want to lay the groundwork for what that means? Yeah. I think we hit on it a little bit on the comment of, there's so many fantastic distributed systems, researchers, engineers, and they just don't have a way to interact with the blockchain ecosystem. Typically, it's just been, you know, launch your own chain. And so I think what's so exciting about this conversation, and we'll have to do a, another iteration of it, but talking about, you know, this design space that Eigenlayer is creating with this initial data availability module. And I think it remains to be seen what the killer apps are going to be. So we'll see. But the unlock around distributed systems engineers and you know, keeping them within the Ethereum ecosystem versus building another layer one is super exciting to talk a little bit about today. 
Yeah. What What are your views? Because I don't remember if you asked this point blank, but just in general for either teams or companies or protocols to approach leading into community to build versus the creating bounty co-building route? It's so hard to get perfectly correct. I think with these ecosystems, you have sort of two sides of the scale. One is building a highly profitable business that's centralized or core offering that's centralized. And the other is building this public good uh, and this open ecosystem. And so you inherently feel these pulls from both sides. We've seen it amongst other teams and they're more, you know, they're entirely focused on building out market share to the point where it no longer becomes an open public good or, or of the sort. And then you also see teams skewing, you know, completely to the public good side and really almost sitting in their hands around pushing it forward and developing and things like that. And so I think really what it comes down to is if you get to the point where you have those natural pulls from side to side, it means you've done quite well. And so you know, I think that's an exciting part about the conversation that we had today and ongoing within Web3 and crypto. Awesome. Well, I just wanted to do a quick little, you know, five minute recap. Maybe I'll start doing this in all episodes. Just want to try a new format and, you know, just wanted to recap, especially after a very technical conversation. And it's fun to have a co-host on. So I'll be back. Yeah, just invite me back. <laughs> I'm well, okay. I, I'm, I, I'd love to join. <laughs> okay, awesome. All right, well, bye, Ash, and, and everyone, thank you for, for tuning in. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode from Season 2 of Cross-Chain Examination, hosted by Catherine Wu and presented by Archetype. If you like this episode, please give it a five-star rating, like it on YouTube, and subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Also, make sure to check out Season 1. We have 10 episodes from awesome guests talking about all kinds of topics, from privacy and crypto to crypto regulation to many, many other topics that I care deeply about. Share this also with a friend, with a coworker, and maybe even family if you enjoyed it. And give us a follow on Twitter. We are at CrossChainPod. DM me, at me with any suggestions, guests you would like to hear, and anything else. Thank you so much again, and I hope you tune in to our next one.